You will have to, just a disclaimer, pardon my voice. Uh, it has been off all week. I wish I had a really good, pious reason, like I was screaming for Jesus in the middle of the city or something. Uh, what happened was I went to the Eagles game last Sunday, and I still have not recovered. Till yesterday, I was telling Binu, you might have to preach tomorrow, so read Esther a bunch of times, because uh, this might not work. So I'll be sipping tea throughout, so just bear with me. Pray for my voice also as... Uh, as you can, because I, I really believe the Lord wants you to hear the story and, and has something to say to you, okay? In this series, in some ways, it has felt like we've been getting ready for Christmas since September, uh, since the moment we started this series called Shadows, where we've been walking our way through the various stories of the Old Testament. And as we've looked at each of these stories in one character after another, it's like every story has been pushing us forward to, he's great but there's one better coming. She's great, but there's one better coming, right? So you saw Adam and you said, that's awesome, but a better Adam is coming. And, and Joseph, but a better Joseph is coming. And, and Daniel, but a better Daniel has been, is coming. And so now we're coming to the very tail end of this series. So today we'll look at one more character from the Old Testament, and then we'll wrap up next week as we celebrate the arrival of the one to whom all these stories had been pointing. We get to celebrate Christmas and remember all these shadows. We're doing that, just giving us a preview of the one who was to come. So this morning, we're going to finish, conclude our survey through the Old Testament. We began back in Genesis. We sort of worked our way through the whole Old Testament story, and we finished this morning with the story of Esther, Okay. Uh, I've loved this story this week, and I think as you hear it, you'll come to love this story as well. Esther's story happens towards the very end of the Old Testament. She lived about 400 years before Jesus. So before Bethlehem and before the angels showed up, 400 years prior to that is Esther's story. And Esther's story is very different than all the other stories we've considered throughout this series so far. In fact, Esther's story is different than all the other books of the Old Testament. Her story is different than every other story. And, and here's why. When you read the book of Esther, there's some things that are very noticeably missing. Some things that you come to expect as you read the stories of the Bible that you don't find in Esther. Right? Some, when, when you read the Bible, there's some stuff you come to expect in the stories of the scriptures, and none of them do you find in Esther's story. For example, there's, there's no prophets. There's no message from the Lord. There's no word from God. There's no one to declare God's word. There's no miracles. There's no signs. There's no wonders. There's no plagues. There's no burning bush. There's no parting of the sea. There's no whale giving you a, a three-day cruise in the ocean. There's none of it. There's no mention of the temple. There's no sacrifices. There's no priests. There's, there's none of that. There's none of the things that you come to expect in the Bible. It, it seems almost as if God is altogether absent. There's a bunch of stuff that happens in Esther's story that's good. There's a bunch of stuff that happens that's awful. And of course, the natural question that arises is, where is God in the midst of these everyday, ordinary, normal events of life? In fact, let me, let me say it as plainly as I can. It's not just temples and prophets and priests and sacrifices and laws and miracles that are not mentioned in Esther. God is not mentioned in Esther. 
Ten chapters in the whole book, God is not named once, not mentioned once. No Elohim, no Adonai, no Jehovah, no Yahweh. There's no mention of God in the whole book. To the point that many have wrestled with, why is this book in the Bible in the first place? I mean, many have, have wrestled whether they should rip Esther out and toss it because how can you have a book that doesn't even reference God? Yet, this is part of the brilliance of the book. Because as you read the story, what you begin to see is though you cannot see God visibly anywhere, he is working invisibly everywhere. I want you to hear that again because that's not just a throwaway line. In Esther's story, what you begin to see is, though you cannot see God visibly anywhere, he is at work present in Esther everywhere. And I want to say to you, out of all the stories, this one is very much perfect and relevant for us because this is very much like our lives. We don't live in the days of burning bushes and whales and, and the winds and, and, and great plagues or signs and miracles. We live in the day where you wake up and you go to sleep and 10,000 seemingly insignificant things happen every single day and we're hardly aware to where God is in any of that. We're hardly aware of God's presence in any of those things. Sometimes good things happen in life. Sometimes bad things happen in life. And we're sort of left asking, where is God in all of that? He is no doubt invisible, but moreover, he even sometimes seems absent. And Esther's book comes to show us, listen friends, listen Sevamaru, God is present in all of it, even in something as insignificant as you lying your head on the pillow, God's there. Esther's going to show you that. Esther's going to show you, don't, don't take my word for it, as you read through the story, you're going to see God is at work, even in something that seems as insignificant and plain as a sleepless night. You ever have a, a hard night of sleep? And, and Esther's going to say God's there, even in that. Because throughout the story, you're going to see in all of life, he is at work. And he's not just at work, he is at work specifically for good for his people. In the invisible ways that you cannot see, God is providentially at work for the good of his people. So you'll see that as we consider Esther's story. Uh, pray with me for a moment for my voice. Pray with me for your ears that you would hear this word from the Lord and we would see God at work through the story of Esther. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you gave us the Bible. You did not leave us groping in the dark, wondering what manner of God you are, wondering about the enormous questions of life. You have revealed to us what you intend for us to know about life and the world and you and how things work. We pray now that you would be with something as feeble as my voice. Uh, if ever present, today would be a good day to remember we have not come to hear from man. We've come to hear from you. So let your voice be spoken to us by the Holy Spirit in ways that are more powerful than a man's vocal cords. But be with not only my voice, be with our ears. Because the communicating of your word is only half of it. We would ask then for grace to hear your word. 
and not just hear it and deceive ourselves, but do what it says, that we would be transformed through the hearing of this word, that you would show us Christ, and showing us Christ, we would love him and live for him going from this place. Come do that and more than we know to ask. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, as we've been tracking through this series, we've covered a lot of terrain and ground in the Bible. We started with a couple in the garden named Adam and Eve, and we watched as that couple had children and grandchildren, and we watched how their descendants, a man named Abraham, was promised a whole nation of children. We watched as that nation was taken into slavery in Egypt and brought out of slavery and into the promised land by a man named Joshua. We watched as that nation became a real nation and had kings, and we saw good kings come and bad kings come. And most recently, we've even remembered that Israel itself, this nation was now divided in two. You had a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And if you were with us last week as we covered the story of Daniel, you'll remember that this, these two kingdoms were both swallowed up by enemies. The north by Assyria, this empire, and the southern kingdom was swallowed up by the empire of Babylon. Well, history tells us that eventually the Babylonian Empire, which seemed invincible at the time, is swallowed up themselves by another more powerful empire called the Persian Empire. And so history tells us that the Persians came and took over Babylon. And what history tells us is that the king of Persia allowed many of the Jews who had now been scattered throughout the empire, diaspora all over the place, to return to their land. And so in the books right before Esther, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, you read the story of many of the Jews going back to their homeland to reclaim their land and rebuild the temple. But not all the Jews go back. Many of them are still scattered throughout the Persian Empire, living in various cities. And the king of the Persian Empire is the first character that we're introduced to in the book of Esther. If you've got a Bible, turn to Esther the passages that Benu read for us. We're going to be parked there throughout the chapters of Esther this morning. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, okay? Uh, no shame in looking at the front of the book if you need the page number, okay? Uh, Esther's story comes after a bunch of Jews have gone back to rebuild the temple, but many have stayed in the Persian Empire scattered throughout. And Esther chapter 1 begins with the very first character introduced, which is the king of the Persian Empire. His name is Ahasuerus. I've practiced that all week. My only hope is that you don't know how to say it, so whatever I say sounds right. Uh, he's got a Greek name, which is Xerxes, which is much easier to say, so that's what I'm going to say. Xerxes, if you've watched the movie 300, uh, you've seen that that tall, weird-looking dude is, is Xerxes, the king of the Persian Empire. And Xerxes' kingdom is this massive chunk of real estate. If you could pull up your world map in your mind, his kingdom extends from northern Africa to what is today Pakistan, right? So that's a sizable chunk of real estate, one of the largest empires the world had ever known. And he's who you're introduced to right off the bat in Esther 1, verse 1. Listen to what it says. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. 
the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, a hundred and eighty days. So here's how the book starts. Xerxes is so stinking rich, so filthy rich, so opulent his empire that the book starts with him throwing this enormous party. It starts with this feast, with this festival. And not just any kind of festival. He's got a party that the text says lasts for six months. 180 days. Right? Think about that. Some of you are still recovering from Thanksgiving lunch. Right? And just getting geared up again. Already you're sweating thinking about Christmas dinner. Right? This guy throws a party for 180 days. And not just for a, a small number of people. He calls all the governors, all the nobles, all the officials. In fact, the whole army, the entire military is now in Susa where his palace is built so that he can throw them a giant six-month frat party. That's what you should think of. It's just a bunch of guys. There's no real women present. They have their own party. And the only women present are the ones with no good reputation. And it's just... All these military men and these officials and these nobles and all of them, and they've got this six-month party going, 180 days. In fact, this party is so big that after the end of these six months, he throws another seven-day party where it's not just going to be a feast for the military anymore. He now calls the entire city to come in. So all the farmers and peasants and workers, all the people in the city of Susa are invited to the king's palace for a seven-day feast. And, and the text, I'm not going through for the sake of time now. You read chapter 1, he pulls out all the stops. He, he, he doesn't spare any expense. I mean, it just begins to describe his opulence and his power. For example, back then, purple was this rare dye. Only the rich had purple. I mean, you, you grew up, you heard of the idea of purple. You'd never seen it. Well, Xerxes' palace was draped with purple curtains and curtains that had been held up by silver rods. He had marble pillars holding the, the ceilings of his palace. He had precious jewels, so many of them that he, he dug them into the floor. You were walking on diamonds and rubies and precious jewels. You sat on couches, not upholstered with cloth. They were gold and silver couches. You drank from cups. All of them were gold. I mean, this guy was out of your mind wealthy. And he's got this party, and, and what he intends to do in these two feasts is to show off, the text says, his greatness and the pomp of his greatness and his glory. Everyone was to see how great Xerxes was. And so he was going to show off his palace, and as the story keeps going, he's not just going to show off the beauty of his palace, he wants to show off the beauty of his wife as well. So here's what happens. At the end of six months of drinking with his frat buddies, you can imagine they're all just outside their mind. He decides it's time to show off his most beautiful possession of all. And so he sends his eunuchs, his servants, to go and fetch the queen, Queen Vashti, to come and parade in front of him so that all his boys can oogle and ogle over her and see what Xerxes owns. And that's what he intends to do. He intends to parade his trophy wife in front of all his drunk friends so that they would all be impressed with him. 
Well, the servant goes to the queen and calls her and bids her to come. And she basically tells the servant, tell that fool I am not coming. Word gets back to the king that Vashti's not going to show. And now Xerxes looks like a chump in front of all his boys. Right? This is not good. And so he's so angry now. And he asks his wise men. It says, young wise men. When you hear the wise men in Esther, just think Mo, Larry, and Curly. That's, that's what these wise men are. They are idiots throughout the whole story. And he asks these wise men, what are we supposed to do? And so they get real panicked. And they say, this is bad, king. Because if the queen is resisting the king, what's our wives going to do? And that's their big concern. They're ruling over the entire world, and their big concern is, if Vashti said no to you, imagine what our wives are going to say to us when we get home. No man is safe. And, and it's almost like the text is poking fun. Can you imagine these guys? They're ruling over the whole world, and their concern is over the wives of the kingdom. And so this is the best that they come up with. They say, here's what we'll say. Vashti can't come to you anymore. And again, it's sort of, to, sort of poke fun. Wait, 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 wait. She said, I'm not coming, and your big punishment is to tell her she can't come? This is like the scene where, you know, the guy who goes, I quit, and the boss says, no, 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 you're fired. And he goes, you can't fire me, I just quit, right? That's what this is. I just said I'm not coming. What do you mean I can't come? That's no punishment. This is what Vashti had already said. But these guys figure this is a big move on their part, and so they order Vashti never again to enter into the king's presence, and so now the king is a bachelor again. Not really, because he's got a harem around him all the time, but now he's divorced his wife, and some years pass, and the bachelor king obviously needs a queen. So, Molari and Curly come together again with another idea, okay? If it were today, they would have their own reality TV show. Because here's the idea they put forth to Xerxes. They basically take The Bachelor and Miss America and combine it together and say, here's what you need to do. You need to hold a beauty pageant with all the young virgins in the entire empire. Bring them all to Susa and we'll have this contest and we'll see which one emerges to be the next queen. And so that's what they do. They go throughout the entire empire and they round up all the prettiest young ladies the empire has, all the virgins that are good to look at in the entire empire, they bring them to Susa, to the king's palace, to put them in the king's harem. If you're a bachelor, that to your twisted mind seems like a dream come true. If you're a dad, that seems like the worst nightmare you could possibly imagine, right? Your teenage daughter is about to be ripped out of your home to become Xerxes' next plaything. And that's exactly what happens. These young girls are rounded up from the entire empire. None of them have a choice. And they're brought to the palace. And there, they're put into a one-year, basically, beautification program. Cosmetics, where they're dolled up and they get treatments for a whole year. And this entire year of prettying up culminates in one night with the king. You've got this line of girls that are being dolled up for a whole year, and it leads up to one night with the king. And the text says, here's what happens. You go in at night, you come out in the morning, and then from there you are placed as a concubine of the king in his harem to live out the rest of your days in the palace, living a posh life, not allowed to get married anymore, can't have kids, 
and in all likelihood, you'll never see the king again because you get one night, and unless he is so pleased that he asks for you by name, you spend the rest of your days as a concubine just living in his harem. That's the fate of these girls. And the text tells us that one of the girls rounded up in the empire is a Jewish girl named Hadassah. Now, you, you probably don't recognize her Jewish name because her Persian name is Esther. Esther is this Jewish girl living in the empire, and she's an orphan. Mom and dad have died. When all the Jews went back, they stayed in the Persian Empire, but mom and dad died. And now she's been basically adopted by her older cousin, Mordecai. He's become her adopted dad. And the text tells us she was a looker. She was beautiful to look at, lovely in her appearance. And as soon as you hear that she was beautiful, you know, uh-oh. I mean, she's going to be rounded up as well. And that's exactly what happens. She's rounded up and brought to the empire but here's the thing about Esther. Everyone who meets Esther just falls for her, loves this girl. She's not only lovely, she's just great to be around. Everybody who meets Esther loves her. Everybody in her home loves her. Everybody who's in the kingdom loves her. Everybody in the empire loves her. No one escapes her charm, not even the king himself. Because here's what happens. When it's Esther's night, now it's her turn. Her number's been called. Her night with the king. She goes in at night, and immediately the king falls for her. The contest is over. He names her queen. He's found his new wife. And, and before we pass over that detail, that's no small thing. A member of the minority in the empire, a Jewish orphan girl, has now been ascended to queen of Persia. I mean, commentators call this the Jewish Cinderella story. I mean, this is the peasant, orphan, Jewish girl in the Persian Empire who is now queen of Persia. And the thing is, nobody knows of her real identity. Nobody knows her name is Hadessa. Nobody knows she's Jewish. Nobody knows her faith or her ethnicity. She just sort of blends in as Esther, queen of Persia. Her cousin Mordecai had sensed things are not going to go well for us as Jews in this empire, so keep that part of your life secret. When you get to the end of chapter 2, Mordecai, her cousin, is now sitting, it says, at the king's gate. He's perhaps a politician or something like that. And, and he just happens to be at the right place at the right time. And as he's sitting there, he hears, overhears this plot of two men who are out for Xerxes. He overhears this assassination plot by these two men to kill Xerxes. And he, even though Xerxes is a punk, does the right thing and immediately goes and tells Esther, listen, your husband's life is in danger. Tells them that what he's heard. They investigate the whole matter. They capture these two men and they punish him. And what Mordecai had done is written into the book of records in the kingdom. There's this book of memorable deeds and the chronicle of memorable deeds and it's written into the books. So you get to the end and you're expecting now, all right, some kind of promotion maybe from Mordecai, some kind of exaltation, some kind of celebration, some kind of he ascends now. And when you get to the next verse, there is a promotion and there is an exaltation and there is an ascension but it's not Mordecai. It's a man named Haman, the Agagite, right? Now, for the sake of time, I won't go into it more again, but 
Haman is the bad guy in the story, right? He's the guy in the Western movie where the creepy music comes because this is the bad guy. As soon as he shows up on the scene, you know this is the bad guy in the story. And you're given these small little details like that Haman is an Agagite. And then we're told Mordecai is this Jew from the tribe of Benjamin. He's a Benjaminite. And if you read through the Old Testament, you know uh, suddenly you're reminded of some of these stories of the Benjaminites and the Agagites. A long time before, when Saul was king, there was a king named Agag, and Saul and Samuel the prophet hack Agag to pieces. So if you can imagine that, that's not going to go well down the line for these two rival families. So as soon as you hear Mordecai's Benjaminite, Haman is Agagite, you know there's, there's bad blood here. You expect something bad to go, and that's exactly what happens. As the text goes on, Haman is promoted to second in command in the whole kingdom. And when he walks by, everybody in the empire bows down, not worship, but homage, this, this gesture of respect to Haman. Everybody bows, except the Benjaminite. Mordecai won't bow. Every time Haman walks by and everybody's prostrate, Mordecai just looks him right in the eyes. And you can imagine what that does to Haman. In fact, let me let you hear it. This is 3 verse 5. It says, And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So here's what happened. He's so angry at Mordecai, but it will not be enough for him to just get Mordecai. No, what he's after is just kill everybody that's like Mordecai. In fact, in some ways, he's the precursor to Hitler. What he wants to do is long before wipe out all the Jews. He wants to annihilate and have this genocide on all the Jews, not just in the city of Susa, where they are, throughout the entire empire. Get rid of them all as a people, as his sort of revenge to Mordecai. And so that's exactly what he plots to do. He goes to the king, and he asks for permission. He says, listen, king, in your empire, there's a bunch of people. And you've heard this before, right? There's a bunch of people who are really prospering. You can't trust them. They're not good for the rest of the empire. They don't follow our laws. They don't keep our commands. They don't worship our gods. What you need to do, king, is get rid of them. And if you get rid of them, I'll plunder and I'll put 10,000 silver coins or, or shekels of silver or talents of silver in your treasury. Now, Ahasuerus has no idea. Xerxes has no idea who these people even are, but he does know what 10,000 pieces of silver looks like. And so he says, no problem. He signs the deal, and like happens every other scene in the book of Esther, they go out drinking to sort of seal the deal. And now word goes throughout the entire empire that on this certain day in the month of Adar, 11 months away, everybody in every city throughout the whole empire was to turn on the Jews to kill every man, every woman, and every child everywhere. And here's the thing. When you read the story, you're supposed to know this is their death sentence. And not just because a word has gone out, because this is an irrevocable edict. If you remember last week when we were looking through the book of Daniel, if you remember, the king didn't want to throw Daniel into the lion's den except what happened. He had already given the edict. And once you give the edict, you can't take it back, not even the king. 
And so when it says that the edict has gone out throughout the entire empire, that on this day the Jews are to be slaughtered, you can't take that back. This is done. They are going to, to die on that day. Well, as the story goes, it just so happens again, sitting at the right place at the right time is Mordecai. And he overhears of this new plot as well. And so he runs to the gate of the king and he tears his robe. Of course, right? He tears his robe and he sits in sackcloth and mourning and ashes because now he knows he's done, his people are done, the edict has gone out, he's weeping and wailing and begging God for mercy. Esther's sitting in her palace, so removed from the people. She sees Mordecai sitting in ashes in the city at the king's gate. And so she sends some fine clothes to him and says, look, you got you to gotta dress up. You can't hang out there like that. Life's not that bad. He sends back the clothes and says, you can keep your clothes. And with the servant gives her this word. This is chapter 4, verse 8. Listen to it. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he, the servant, might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. So here's what Mordecai says. Esther, you're our only hope now. The king has issued this edict that everyone's going to be slaughtered. You've got to go to your husband and beg him for our lives. Esther sends the servant back and says, Mordecai, I can't do that. Everybody in the palace, everybody in the empire knows nobody just walks into the presence of the king uninvited. If I go to the king without him having extended his scepter and invited me to come, I'm dead. That's the rule. Nobody goes in uninvited. And Mordecai, just in case you forget, you remember what he did to the last queen he didn't like. Right? So Esther knows she walks in uninvited and it's death for her. Mordecai responds. Again, there's this messenger running back and forth, giving messages between the two. And Mordecai says, go tell Esther this. You really think you're going to be safe in the kingdom while all us Jews die out here? What do you think he's going to do to you when he finds out you're Jewish? And, and more than that, Mordecai even says, again, God's not mentioned, but there's this invisible faith. He says, look, we're going to be delivered. The question is just from where and by whom. And then he gives perhaps what's the most famous verse in Esther. Esther 4 verse 14 says, And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Who knows, Esther? Who knows out of all the women in the entire empire, it just so happened to be you? And out of all the women selected, you were made queen? Who knows, orphan, peasant, Jewish girl, if you didn't become queen of Persia, for exactly such a time as this. Listen to how Esther responds, 4 verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. This is where Esther steps up and steps into her own and she says, look, I'll do this. If I die, I die. But you tell everybody, don't eat or drink anything for three days. You better be begging God for my life. And so at the end of three days, she wears her most royal robes, looks as queenly as could be, and she goes into the king's court uninvited and unannounced. And it's almost as if time freezes for a second. 
because you don't know what's about to happen. And the king extends his scepter to her. And you let out this huge sigh. The king's shown favor. Again, favor from somewhere has welled up in his heart. And she invites Esther in. And he, he basically says, look, I know something must be up for you to have come. What do you want, queen? He loves this girl. He says, anything you want, up to half my kingdom, I'll give it to you. So she's looking for just the right time. And she says, here, if I've found favor in your sight, you and Haman come to my house tomorrow. I'll throw a feast, or come to my house right away for a feast, a, a, a festival. I'd love to throw you a feast. So the king drops everything. He grabs Haman, second in command. They go to Esther's house. They have this feast. While they're eating and drinking, again, the king says, what do you want? You came for a reason. Up to half my kingdom, whatever you want, it, it's, it's yours. She's, she's maybe working up the courage to say it, maybe looking for just the right time, but, but she delays and she says, come back tomorrow. And I'll tell you, one more time, I'll throw another feast. You and Haman, you come. Now, this is where the story gets even better. Haman walks out of that first feast, and if I was a dancer, I would dance across the stage to show you what this guy's strutting must have looked like. In my mind, I picture him doing the moonwalk out of the palace, right? Because this guy is, I mean, he's riding the clouds right now. You're telling me the first lady and the president have a private meal, and the only guest in the entire universe that they invite is me, right? I mean, this, he, he's riding third wheel to the king and the queen and this private dinner just for him, and he got another invite tomorrow again. I mean, he is as happy as can be. Nothing can turn his day down as happy as could be. He walks out of the palace, and guess who's standing right at the king's gate? Listen to it because it's so good. 5 verse 10. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. He's moonwalking his way out, right? And everybody's bowing. And the one guy happens to be there. Mordecai's spent the whole day prostrate on the ground, torn, clothes torn, ash all over his face. But when he sees Haman, <laughs> that guy stands up, looks him right in the face. Oh, and this perfect day is done. I mean, it's ruined. The one thing that could have ruined his perfect day. He goes home and the text says he just basically whines to his wife and his friends. Oh, everything's going well. They even invited me in. The queen wants just dinner with me. But as long as Mordecai's alive, I'm not going to be happy. I've got to do something. And so his wife and his friends comfort him, and they say, listen, you're the king's second in command. This can't go on another day. You need to build some gallows and get this guy hung. And if there was ever an idea that tickled his ears, that was the one. Now, so what he does is he builds some gallows. When you think of getting hung, you think of a, a wooden construction noose and the rope. That's not this. This is this construction built where you basically pin the guy to the top. It's basically the precursor to the Roman cross. You're going to impale this guy. You're going to pin him. And, 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 Mordecai, and Haman's not just going to you know, build some 10-foot basketball pole. He constructs that night a 75-foot tower, seven and a half stories, so that everybody can see Mordecai pinned to the top. And everybody's going to know you don't mess with him. I mean, Mordecai's dead body hanging seven and a half stories up is going to be the sign to the entire empire. Haman has arrived. 
So he goes to night that, that night, and he goes to bed. And you can just imagine, he sleeps like a baby. Because come morning, he's going to go to the king and get this guy impaled, hung on that, on that construction. So he sleeps perfectly. But on that night, there's one guy who can't sleep. 6 verse 1 says this. On that night, the king could not sleep. Now that is such an insignificant detail, right? I mean, what, what, what is that there? On that night, the king could not sleep. What a seemingly inconsequential detail. So here's what happens. The king can't sleep. He's wrestling and tossing and turning the whole night. So if you can't sleep and you're powerful, you, you, you maybe get someone to read for you. So that's what the king does. And you're not going to read an epic story. You read the dictionary or the phone book because you're trying to fall asleep. You want to be maybe bored to death. So the king invites these eunuchs and says, read to me. And so they grab off the shelf, entire empire, all the books in the world. They grab off the shelf the book of the deeds and chronicles of the kingdom. And out of all the records of all the things done in the kingdom, they just so happened to read that night of the account of Mordecai saving the life of the king. So now it's early morning. The king's just heard this. And he says, wait, how does that end? Did we ever do anything to honor that guy? And the, the servants look throughout and they go, no, no, nothing was ever done. And just then, there's a knock on the door. It's early morning. And guess who's outside? Remember, he had woken up at the crack of dawn because he's getting Mordecai killed. So just then, Haman shows up in the court. And the king is thinking to himself, wait, nothing's been done for Mordecai. This knock on the door, Haman shows up and he says, who's at the court? And they call Haman in. And the king says, before Haman can blurt out a word, the king says, listen, Haman, what should be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? What, what should be done for such a man? And the text is so good. The text says, Haman thought to himself, who else could that be but me, right? He just got a private dinner with the queen and with him. And so he's thinking to himself, the king is thinking about what to do for me. So this is what he says. He says, king, you, you can't pull out, you, you got to pull out all the stops. You got to dress this guy in the robes of the king. You got to put a crown on his head. And not just that, you got to get a horse, one that you rode yourself, the king's horse, and parade him around the city and say, thus shall happen to the man in whom the king delights. And then let me read it because it's better than if I could say it. Verse 10 says this. Then the king, 6 verse 10, then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. By the way, what you're doing is exactly what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to gospel-centeredly laugh. I mean, did you see the reversal here? This guy planned a parade that Mordecai, the closest I could think of this morning is, this would be like if the Dallas Cowboys planned a parade for the Super Bowl and then had to walk the Eagles through their streets. That's, that's what this is like. So now he's got to ride Mordecai around the city and go, this is what happens to the man in whom the king delights to honor you can imagine he goes home and now he's just a basket case in front of his wife and his friends. And they even sense, look, there's something here. They go, look, if you're after this man and he's Jewish, you got to stop because otherwise you're going to fall to him. 
Before they can even finish the conversation, it's time for the second feast. So while they're talking, the servants come and they grab him and they go, you got to go back to Esther's feast. Remember, it's, it's time. So now he shows up at the feast and now he's eating and drinking with the king. And, and it says that at that second feast, Esther basically says, the king goes to Esther again and says, what do you want? This is the second night in a row. You got to tell me what you want. She musters up the courage. And she says, King, there is someone to get me and my people. The king is so angry. Who in his empire would dare come after my, my queen? And she goes, him. That wicked man, Haman. And I just picture him almost choking on his chicken bone. Right? He, he didn't expect that. And he gets outed there. And the text says the king is so angry, so mad. He storms out of the room because he doesn't know what he's going to do. And now Haman realizes all of his plans have come crashing down on him. And so now it's just the queen in the room alone. She's sitting on her couch. He basically goes up to her to plead for his life. He goes onto the couch. The king walks back in. And now Haman is on the queen's couch. He reads one thing into another and says, You're going to assault my own wife in my own house? And before the sentence is done, it says it fell on Haman's face and he's done. The king says, Out with him. We're going to kill him. And then one of the servants goes, actually, king, Haman constructed some gallows for us. There's some gallows outside. We could just do that right now. 7 verse 10. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. You read the final chapters, and man, everything is just reversed. A death sentence for Mordecai, he's going to be humiliated. Haman's going to be exalted. By the end of the story, Haman is hung on that thing built for Mordecai. And Mordecai ascends to guess what? Second in command. Everything that was Haman's is given to Mordecai. This death sentence that the Jews were under, remember, it can't be reversed. The king can't just say, I changed my mind. But another edict is signed and sent throughout the empire saying, Look, on that day, the Jews are allowed to defend themselves. They're going to fight back. And so Edith goes throughout the whole world. And on that day, on the day of Adar, the 13th day, the Jews fight. And 9 verse 1 captures beautifully this reversal, so I'll read that to you. It says, now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar... On the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. There's no genocide, no annihilation. And in fact, the Jews come out on top. And the book ends with two great feasts, just the way it began. One for all the Jews everywhere, this feast called Purim. And then a smaller one, even for those specifically in the city of Susa, to celebrate that God had rescued them. And with that, the book closes. Somehow, let me just say two things, and then we'll be done. There is so much to glean from this. As I read this this week, all I kept thinking is, we've got to preach a series on the book of Esther. This is so good. And there's so much to glean from here, but I want to highlight just for you two things. One, do you see how God is not mentioned once in the story and he's everywhere? 
the invisible God is working everywhere for the good of his people. Every single thing that happens, happens according to the invisible providence. That's what the theologians call this, the providence of God. Your life is not out of control. God is not absent in the details. Things are not insignificant. God is at work in all of it. And we've seen this before. This is not the first time. As we've gone through these stories in the Old Testament, tell me you haven't seen that before. The Pharaoh issues an edict in Egypt. All the baby boys must die. A mom puts a baby in a basket out of all the places where that basket could land. Tell me where it lands except the palace of the Pharaoh, so that Pharaoh ends up raising, paying room and board for the guy who would undo him. We were in Ruth, out of all the fields in Israel to to reap grain from. This widow happens to go to the one man who can redeem her and ends up in Boaz's field. And what about here? do Do you see how many times it just so happened? It just so happened that out of all the women in the kingdom, Esther was plucked from her home. And out of all the women in the contest, it just so happened, Esther becomes queen. And out of all the places he could have been that day, Mordecai just so happens to be sitting at the right place at the right time to hear two men speaking about the king. And it just so happens that his deed was recorded in the book and nothing was ever done for him. And it just so happens that... Haman is flying high and he builds this gallows and who happens to be standing at the king's gate that day as he's walking out of that feast? It just so happens to be Mordecai. And it just so happens that on the very night where he plots Mordecai's death, it just so happens that the king can't sleep that night. And out of all the books in the empire, it just so happens that they pull out the book of the record of deeds. And out of all the deeds, it just so happens that they read Mordecai's deeds. And it just so happens that the knock on the door is Haman. And it just so happens that the very gallows Haman builds, he's hung on. At some point you go, none of that just so happened. At some point you go, all those random coincidences are anything but random or coincidences. At some point you go, there is a God orchestrating all of that. I mean, even if you don't believe, even if you don't think there's a God, we've invented a word called fate to describe somehow life doesn't always work just by coincidence. Fate is a word we invented to describe even in a world that seems like it's just made out of chance. Things happen where you, you feel like there's something more to this. Even if you believe you're sitting here because a random bunch of molecules bumped into each other and exploded, and we all happen to be here, you even use the word fate to describe there's something behind all this. And the Bible and Esther would come and say, that's not fate, the word is providence. There is a God behind all of history orchestrating everything so that in your life, hear me, that insignificant sleepless night, that seemingly unimportant detail in your life, None of it is random or coincidence. But God is sovereignly at work in all your days, in all your hours, and in all your moments and your minutes. You are not the sum of a bunch of random molecules bumping into each other. You are providentially being led by God. 
And we could keep talking about that, and we could probably spend just as much time also noticing this, this theme of reversal. Do you see reversal throughout this story? I mean, this unexpected twist, this crazy turn. And again, that's not new either. We've seen that many times before, that God loves often to take the very thing that his enemy designs to undo him. God loves to do that. Right? And we've seen that before. Pharaoh issues an edict that babies are to be killed. If he doesn't, Moses is going to grow up in the brickyard like a slave, like everyone else. But because of his very edict, Moses is spared, and he ends up footing the bill for the guy that would undo him. Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery to humiliate him. Through that very act, he is transferred to Egypt where he is exalted to the highest place so that his dream of his brothers bowing to him happens through the very means they intended to destroy him. Daniel's enemies create this pit of lions to throw Daniel in. Daniel's spared. He is exalted out. And the very pit they made for him, they fall into. And the text says, before they hit the bottom, the lions tear them to pieces. And Haman plans a parade that he has to walk Mordecai through and builds some gallows for Mordecai that he ends up hanging on. And the entire text is doing that. The entire text is saying God will not be mocked. You will not have the last word. You can live your life as though you're setting up this path for your ascendance. And God is saying, you either humble yourself or I will humble you. And if you humble yourself, I will lift you up. That's the way my kingdom works. There's so much we could say here. But one last time, Seven Mile Road, hang with me for five more minutes. One last time, said my road, would you tell me who's the hero of this story? Would you tell me who's at the very center of this story? Who is the savior here? And I'll show you one thing, and then we'll be done. Uh, Matt Cruz, uh, a pastor from Boston, our brother in Boston, he preached this brilliant sermon where he made this brilliant observation that I want to show you once, and then we'll be done. He says, the way that this story works in Hebrew literature is something called chiasm. All right, let me just tell you quickly what chiasm is. We don't have a real equivalent in the English, but chiasm works, and it's all throughout the Bible, where you have the end mirroring the beginning. You've got a bunch of events where the end mirrors the beginning. So, for example, in Esther, the book starts with two feasts, a big one and a small one. And the book ends with what? Two feasts, a big one and a small one. And you've got this mirroring going on between the two. And if you find the center, you'll find this hinge at the very center of this chiasm where the whole story turns. So what's the hinge? What's the center where the story turns? And if you find the hinge and find the center, you find the hero of the story. So what's the hinge? What's the center so that you can find who's the hero that saves the people? Some of us would say, and rightly so, we'd say, it's, it's got to be Esther, right? That, that's who the book is named after. And maybe the hinge is the moment where she finally accepts what she's got to do, and she says, if I perish, I perish. Great scene, not the hinge. Maybe it's where she actually steps into the king's court uninvited and unannounced and risks her life, and you're not sure if she's going to die or live. Great scene, not the hinge, not the center. So if you go, it's not Esther, then it's got to be Mordecai. 
Maybe it's the moment where he rips his clothes and he's crying out to God for their salvation. Great scene, not the center. Maybe it's the, the moment where he stands up and when no one else will look Haman in the face, he looks him right in the eyes. Great scene, not the center. So then what is the hinge? You've got these two feasts in the beginning. You've got these two feasts in the end. And in the middle of the book, you've got two feasts as well. Esther's first feast, where she says, come back tomorrow, and her second feast, where she exposes Haman. And what happens in the middle of that? What happens in the middle of that is 6 verse 1, the king's sleepless night. 6 verse 1, on that night, the king could not sleep. And the whole story turns. And Sema wrote, who's at work there? Who's at work in the king's sleepless night? In fact, the first translators who translated Esther added their own interpretation and translated it. That night, the Lord took sleep from the king. That night, the Lord took sleep from the king. Who's the hero of the story? Esther's great. Mordecai's great. But the Lord is the one who saves his people. So that at the center of the story, you find our great God who has been providentially working all things to reverse everything on his enemies and save his people. And Seven Mile Road, that's not just the center of Esther's story, that is the center of the human story. The human story has in the beginning this eternal God who lived forever in eternity past. And in the end, you have this eternal God who will live forever in eternity future. And at the center of those two ends is this hinge, Jesus Christ, the one who came, the one who was born, the one who lived and died and rose again, the very center of human history, what we divide time by and say before him and after him. At the very center of it all is this hinge, the hero who stepped into the story to save God's people. And in him, you see, God had been working everything to this exact moment to bring him. I mean, since September, that's what we've been seeing, all these events getting you ready for him. And tell me, the reversal of all reversals doesn't happen there. That the, the symbol of Roman power, Satan's victory, the Jews' triumph, all is in this ugly cross, and yet the most ugly thing in human history is the most beautiful thing we sing about all the time. That the place of the greatest defeat is the place of greatest victory. That in his death, there's life for all. That where Satan should have triumphed, Satan is defeated. And where Jesus should have been defeated, Jesus triumphs. All of that happens there. And perhaps the greatest reversal of all in the gospel story, friends, is this. At the end of the story, Haman dies on this construction because he's the bad guy. He built it for Mordecai, he dies. But the greatest reversal of all is we were the bad guys. And the cross that was built for us, he hung on. And he was impaled and made a spectacle of, and you had to look up to see him. And the good guy dies for the Hamans. That's the good news. You and I should have been impaled there, and the cross that was built for us 
Jesus dies on because he's the center of the story. Let's pray together. Father, fill our hearts with love now, fresh love for the great hero of the scriptures, the great hero of human history himself, Jesus Christ. And fill our hearts with fresh affection for him. We just ask now and pray that for every person here, we'd ask ourselves, who's the center of our story? Where's the hinge of our own story and narrative? Are we living this life on our own? Or has Jesus come into the middle and turned everything around? We were headed one way, and then Jesus stepped in and changed everything. Let that be the story of every person sitting in this room, every person at Seven Mile Road. Let that be the story of countless many in our city, as it is the story of the scriptures and the story of human history itself. We love Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.